Welcome to the Great Detectives of Old Time Radio from Boise, Idaho. This is your host, Adam Graham. If you have a comment, email it to me, box13 at greatdetectives.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radio Detectives and check us out on Instagram, instagram.com slash greatdetectives. If you're enjoying the podcast, please follow us using your favorite podcast software. Our listener support and appreciation campaign continues. You can fill out our advertising survey at adsurvey.greatdetectives.net. You can also become one of our ongoing Patreon supporters for as little as $2 per month at patreon.greatdetectives.net. Well, now it's time for this week's episode of Dragnet. The original air date, January 5th, 1950, and the title is The Big Escape. Ladies and gentlemen, The story you are about to hear is true. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. Dragnet. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned to robbery detail. Two armed bandits have robbed a large jewelry store in your city. One of the suspects escapes. One is apprehended. He's identified as a friend of yours. Your job, send him to prison. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment... Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Tuesday, February 8th. It was cold in Los Angeles. We were working the night watch out of robbery detail. My partner's Ben Romero. The boss is Thad Brown, chief of detectives. My name's Friday. I was on the way over from the city hall, and it was 8.35 p.m. when I got to the second floor of the Georgia Street Receiving Hospital. Treatment room. Joe, hi. Hi, Doc. Ben? How's it going? Okay. It hurt for a while. Doc gave me an injection. Six of a grain of morphine, Novocaine injection. Bullet still on your shoulder? Doc's about ready to take it out. As soon as I get the wound cleaned, here's the soap and water, nurse. Alcohol sponge, please. How's it look, doctor? Well, there's the x-ray. Shallow penetrating wound in the deltoid area. Mm-hmm. Slugs. Larger than the soft tissue right here. Oh, yeah. No bone involvement. Okay, the bullet was spent. That's good. Feel Okay. Sure. Nurse, methylate applicators, please. All right. Let's see now. Where'd you leave Tyler, Joe? Interrogation room. Reynolds and Thompson are with him. Let me have the probe, nurse. Yeah. Feel anything, Romero? No. That's it. You hear that? Hear what? Located the slug with the probe. Oh. Nurse, force it. Thanks. Here we go. Hold it steady. You call your wife? No, oh, she don't know where I... Here it is, boys. On the market for evidence? Yeah, give it to me, will you? I will. Nurse, sterile saline solution. Here, get the wound. 
No sign of Tyler's partner, huh, Joe? Guy got me? No, not yet, no. Still dressings, please. How long did you know this, Tyler? Before he went wrong, I mean. I met him in the Army, helped him line up a job when he got out. It's too bad. Sure is funny. Making a friend of yours pulled an armed robbery. Must have surprised you, huh? Yeah, kind of. You want me to drive you home when the doc's finished, here? Let's go back to the office and talk to Tyler first. Okay. That all right, Doc? No. You're staying right here, Romero, till tomorrow morning. If you haven't got a temperature by then, I might release it. Oh, it's only a flesh wound, Doc. I feel all right. I'm not taking any chances with gunshot wounds. If infection set in and you were laid up, I'd have the pension committee to answer to. You're staying here. Sounds like an order. It is. You can pick him up in the PNF ward tomorrow morning. Okay. You gonna need anything, Ben? Yeah. A phone to tell my wife I won't be home for dinner. His name was Max Tyler, white, male American, age 32. Dark hair, brown eyes, medium build, married, father of twin boys. He was a friend of mine. We served together in the Army overseas, and when the war finished, I came back to my job on the force, and Max went back to his old job. It didn't fit him anymore. He stopped working and started drinking. His wife didn't help much. Max started with small trouble, but it grew fast. On the afternoon of February the 8th, Tuesday... Ben and I surprised two men holding up a Main Street jewelry shop. Shots were exchanged, and Ben received a flesh wound in the shoulder. One of the holdup men escaped. The other one was apprehended. His name was Max Tyler. Hi, Larry. Hi, Joe. Glad you got here. Tyler says he won't talk to anybody but you. Okay, boy. Thanks for standing by. Sure. I'll be outside if you need anything. Max. Joe. You're in deep this time. You shot a cop. I didn't. This guy was with me. I didn't fire once. You were in on the job. Yeah. Then don't expect presents. I don't expect anything, Joe. Glad you came back. I, I don't want to talk to those other cops. I work in the same department they do. Same job. Well, it's easier to talk to you. What's your story? I was crazy to try it. No alibis, Joe, but... I... I didn't know what I was doing, believe me. I, I just didn't realize... I won't buy it, Max. You told me the same thing 14 months ago when they picked you up for those bum checks you were passing. Sure, I hung some paper, but I'm no hood, Joe. You know that. Uh, I was drinking. I needed dough for Dorothy and the kids. You gotta believe me. I need a break. You said that before, too. I went to bat for you. You got off with six months and three years probation. Now you turn up with another caper. I know, Joe. I know. I'm sorry. You're sorry once, Max, and it works. But one free ride's enough for anybody. Now, that's it. Did I say I wanted that kind of a break? I'll, I'll serve my time, Joe. I'll serve every day I owe. And then what can you tell me you couldn't have told the other cops? I want to ask you a favor. Yeah? I know you're going to hook me on this. So while I'm doing my time, Dorothy and the kids are staying with relatives out in Eaglewood. If you're... Well, just keep an eye on them, you know, Joe. I, I don't mean dough. Dorothy can work with... Kind of watch out for him, huh? Give him a break, Joe. It's not their fault. You do it, Joe? Yeah. Sure, I'll take care of it. Now, you do something for me. Anything you want, guy. Let's have the straight story. Who was the guy with you on that holdup this afternoon? Cresta, George Cresta. You know him. Out of Folsom? Short guy, black hair? Yeah, yeah. He's got a room above the Red Owl Bar down on East 3rd near Broadway. That's where he hangs out. Where can we find Cresta now? Oh, maybe there. I don't know. I'll give you a list of the places he goes. Some of his friends I've met. Sure wrote me in. Said there wasn't going to be any rough stuff. You were carrying an S&W 38? Sure, sure. When they got outside the jewelry shop, Crest had jammed the gun in my hand. I had to put it away, get it out of sight. 
Believe me, Joe, he roped me into this. It sounds like an alibi, no. This but is I your could... second time around, Max. It sounds like one. Okay, I got nothing coming. Don't forget about Dorothy and the kids. Huh? I promised you. Now, you want to give me a full statement on the holdup now? Anything you say, Joe. I'll call for a stenographer. Joe. Yeah. I'm sorry. I am. I believe you. You got the feeling too late, that's all. Max Tyler was arraigned in municipal court two days later. Bail was set at $10,000. Three days after that came his preliminary hearing in municipal court. At his arraignment in Superior Court, five weeks after he'd been apprehended, Tyler entered a plea of not guilty. A date was set for his trial in Superior Court. Meantime, the hunt for George Cresta, Max's accomplice, went on. There wasn't a sign of him. Our informants had no lead on him, and the all-points bulletin containing all the information we had on Cresta brought in nothing. On Monday, March 22nd, the trial of Max Tyler was held in Superior Court. Ben and I were subpoenaed to appear. The victim of the holdup, the jewelry store manager, was the first to testify. He was questioned by both the prosecutor and the counsel for the defense. He left the stand at 11.25 a.m. If it please, Your Honor... Counsel for the defense. Before the next witness testifies, I'd like permission to approach the bench. Permission granted. Counsel for the prosecution may also approach. Wonder what that's all about, Bill. Something's up. Hello. Judge is shaking his head. Public defender's going back to the counsel's table there. Counsel for the defense. Your Honor, it's my client's desire to change his plea to guilty. Defendant rise and face the court. Max Tyler, is that your true name? Yes, Your Honor. On the 12th day of March of this year, in Superior Court, Department 83, City and County of Los Angeles, State of California, you have heretofore been arraigned on the charge of robbery in the first degree. At that time, you pled not guilty to the charge in question. Is it now your desire to change that plea? Yes, sir, it is. You've reached this decision of your own free will? Yes, I have. With no force employed, no promise of gratuity or reward to induce you to reach this decision? No, sir. Counsel for the prosecution. Yes, Your Honor. Max Tyler, on the 12th day of March of this year in Superior Court, City and County of Los Angeles, State of California, you are arraigned on the charge of robbery in the first degree. At that time, you entered a plea as set forth in this information. How do you now plead? Guilty or not guilty? Guilty. Is it stipulated that at the time of the commission of the robbery, the defendant was armed with a deadly weapon to wit a revolver? So stipulated. Court fix the degree of robbery, robbery the first degree. Your Honor, in the interest of justice, the people moved to dismiss count two, assault with a deadly weapon. At this time, Your Honor, the defendant weighs time for sentencing and asks that he be sentenced immediately. Just a moment. <coughs> Max Tyler, it's the judgment of this court. On the 8th day of February of this year, you did enter the premises at 23108 East Main Street in the city, and there did attempt the felonious taking of personal property in the possession of another from his person in immediate presence and against his will. Further, said attempt was made while you were armed with a dangerous and deadly weapon. Sarah, <laughs> this court finds you guilty of robbery in the first degree. Count two is dismissed. Does it, Joe? Decision of this court that you be returned to the county jail. The sheriff will transfer you to the state penitentiary where you will serve the sentence as prescribed by law. Court possesses the key minute. Joe, Miss Tyler over there, she's taking it pretty hard. Yeah, come on, we better go see her. 
tomorrow, Dorothy. I love him, Joe. What am I going to do without him? Children. I'll give it to you straight, Dorothy. You didn't do much to keep Max out of this. You drank right along with him. You don't Joe, deserve those kids. That's my opinion. Please, I know it. Don't make it any harder. Don't. I'll do anything I can for the kids, Dorothy. That's all. What am I going to do without him? I can't be all alone without Max. It's not right. It's not right. Neither is armed robbery. Goodbye, Dorothy. Before the end of March, Max Tyler was delivered to San Quentin State Penitentiary where he started serving his term. His wife, Dorothy Tyler, got a job as a telephone operator. She and her children continued living with their relatives down in Inglewood. I helped them out whenever I could. Six months went by. Every two weeks, faithfully, Tyler wrote me a letter from prison. I answered most of them. While Ben and I worked on other jobs, the search for George Creston went on. We failed to uncover a single lead. Ten months passed. Tuesday, January 16th, 1949, 4 p.m. I checked in for work as usual. Hi, Joe. Cold out, huh? Yeah. Did you pick up the mail? Mm-hmm. There's a letter in your box from San Quentin. Tyler, huh? How's he doing, anyway? Good. Clean record. Got himself a pretty fair job in the prison library. Yeah. I talked to the warden up there. Says Tyler ought to be eligible for parole in about a year if he keeps his nose clean. You going to bat for Tyler again? I don't know. See what happens. How can you see anything in that guy? He's giving you nothing but trouble. Oh, a lot of people are giving him the same. Maybe that explains it. Not for me, it doesn't. I wouldn't trust him with dirty laundry. I get it. Robbery Friday. Oh, Joe. This is Dorothy Tyler. I got to talk to you. Yeah, Dorothy. What's the matter? I found Christus. I saw him. What? George Christus. I know where he is. I saw him downtown. I followed him to his place. You sure it was him? I'm positive. He's staying at 134 Jesse Street. It's a rooming house, just off Alameda. One, three, four, Jesse. Got it. Thanks, Dorothy. Come on, Ben. Eight minutes later, Ben and I were interviewing the landlord at 134 Jesse Street. A cheap rooming house down on the south end of the city. The landlord's name was Peterson. We showed him Cresta's mug shot, and he told us he was in room 11. We went up a dark, narrow stairway to the second floor. Stand clear. I'll try the door. Mm-hmm. It's open. Yeah. Joe, have a look. He's asleep. He's passed out. Come on, slip the cuffs on. That was easy. All right, I got his gun. He's been drinking all right. He'll have a big hangover. He'll have a long time to get over it. George Cresta was booked at county jail on suspicion of robbery. Two months and three weeks later in Superior Court, he was tried and convicted of assault with a deadly weapon and first-degree robbery and sentenced to the state penitentiary. The day after Cresta was sentenced, I was called to the office of Chief of Detectives Thad Brown. Friday, this Max Tyler is coming up for parole in a couple of months. He's a friend of yours, isn't he? That's right, in a way. You've been writing letters to the warden. You've talked to the parole board about him. Understand you're helping on his kids. A few presents. They haven't had much of a break. They're just youngsters. You're working hard to get Tyler's parole. Do you think he's worth it? Well, I was off both him and his wife, and, and then she gave us that tip about Cresta, and Tyler's got such a good record up at Q, I figured they'd earned another chance. You're sticking your chin out, Joe, helping a con to get a parole. I think you'll realize that. Well, I believe he's a good risk now, Chief. He's pretty weak in some things. He needs direction, that's all. His wife's getting better. She might help more than she did. I hope both of them are worth it. If anything happens, I know I'm going to get it from all sides. You really think some men deserve another chance, don't you? Yes, sir, I do. I wouldn't want you working for me if you didn't. 
Two more weeks went by. Tuesday, April the 19th. Ben came down with a bad cold and had to lay off work. At the same time, a new gang started a hold-up campaign among the liquor stores out in the Wilshire district. A new rash of armed robberies broke out in the central area. It was an attempted bank robbery. It was a bad week. Ben got back to work on Saturday. Rough time, huh, Joe? Busy, yeah. Did you beat that cold all right? Sure, I feel much better. Doctor gave me some new medicine. Works good. That's fine. Maybe I'll knock off early tonight if nothing's doing. That's a good idea. Shouldn't be too much tonight. Teletype for you. Just came in. Oh, thanks, Larry. Sure. What's the matter, Joe? What is it? Max Tyler. He broke out of prison this morning. You are listening to Dragnet, authentic stories of your police force in action. In the course of his career, the police officer has afforded two diverse views of the criminal. At first, the rookie cop is taught to distrust the criminal at every turn, without exception. He's schooled in the thousand and one ways in which the criminal operates, his psychology, his mode of operation. Then, when he's thoroughly acquainted with the methods of the criminal and how best to detect them, the police officer starts to learn the most difficult lesson of all. How to distinguish between the confirmed criminal and the lawbreaker, in whom there is hope of rehabilitation. After nine and a half years of police work, my first experiment in this field was with Max Tyler. I'd given him two chances to prove himself, and he'd lost on both of them. So did I. Two months before his parole hearing, which might have given him his freedom, Max Tyler had suddenly decided to escape. How he figured it, I didn't know, but it was my job to find him. At 5 o'clock that afternoon, Ben and I met in the chief of detectives' office. Two officers, Holland and Grayson, from the state adult authority, escape detail were there. How did Tyler manage his escape, Grayson? Same old story. They figured they could trust him up there. He had a good job on the prison farm. They trusted him. When did they find out he was gone? On the early morning count. Have you checked his relatives out in Inglewood yet? Yeah, we have. We've got the home staked out. We're covering all the places we figure he might go. How about Mrs. Tyler? You get in touch with her Friday? Relatives told us that she's on a weekend vacation with the two kids, staying with friends down at Laguna Beach. We got a call in to them. Should be hearing from them soon. I understand Tyler's a friend of yours, Friday. He was ready for parole. Yeah. I was trying to help it along. I thought the guy deserved a break. He didn't need you, Joe. He made his own. Well, no use feeling bad. You weren't the only one fooled, Friday. You had the prison officials buffaloed, too. Yeah, I know. I helped convince them. You got any leads on Tyler at all, Grayson? I mean, from the time he broke prison? Pretty strange. They traced him as far as Stockton, then they lost the trail completely. The Stockton police in on the search? Yeah, sure. Funny. The guy has no money, no car we know of, no change of clothes. You figure he's getting help from somebody? Could be. Excuse me a minute. Brown speaking. Oh, just a moment. You Friday. Oh, thank you. Friday? Yeah. When? Uh, where? Uh, just a minute. Will you hold on, please? It's the Tyler's friends down at Laguna Beach. Mrs. Tyler there? No, she called him last night about 7 o'clock, told him she'd changed her plan. She wasn't coming. She told him where she was going? She wanted to know which highway would take her to Stockton. We told the Tyler's friends in Laguna Beach to contact us immediately if they heard from either Mr. or Mrs. Tyler. We got out an APB on Dorothy Tyler, and then we drove out to interview her relatives in Inglewood. They told us that Mrs. Tyler had the two children with her. She had left their house at 6 p.m. the night before by taxi. As far as they knew, she didn't own a car. We talked with some of her friends in the neighborhood. The only thing they could tell us was that she had not borrowed a car from any of them. We drove down to the telephone exchange where she was employed as an operator and we spoke with a manager, a Mr. Ralph Cartwright. 
I'm sorry, gentlemen. This is Mrs. Tyler's night off. Is there something I can help you with? When is Miss Tyler due back at work, Mr. Cartwright? Well, she's working the uh, 10 to 7 starting tomorrow, due in at 10 a.m. Uh-huh. We understand that she's on a weekend vacation, huh? Yes. You see, today was payday, so she asked me if she could have her check ahead of time. Said she had to have the money for the weekend. Did you give her the check? Oh, my, no. I couldn't give her the check ahead of time. But I did do her a favor, just to help her over the weekend. What was that? I loaned her my car. We got a complete description of the car, together with a license number, and called the office. The information was broadcast to all units throughout the city and teletyped to all points in the state. Chief of Detectives Thad Brown ordered an immediate stakeout on the telephone exchange where Mrs. Tyler was employed. The stakeout at the home of Inglewood continued. Another day passed. We checked with the bank where Mrs. Tyler maintained her account. It was 10.25 a.m. when we got back to robbery detail. Gentlemen, what'd you find out? Miss Tyler closed her account three days ago, withdrew all her savings, $46.55. I'm not going to go far on that. Any word about that car she borrowed? Teletype came in about an hour ago. They found it just outside Santa Barbara, abandoned. Anyone see the Tylers? No reports. I wonder how those poor kids are making out. He must be crazy, and his wife, too. If she was going to help him pull an escape, why'd she have to drag the kids along? That's the way some parents figure, Friday. They owe their children nothing. The children owe them everything. Call for you, Friday. Take it on two. Oh, thanks, Larry. Friday. This is Hopkins, Friday, on stakeout, the phone exchange. Yeah, Bert. Tyler woman came for a check. We got her. Dorothy Tyler was brought into the city hall, where there was one of her children. He was delivered to the juvenile authorities for the time being. Mrs. Tyler was brought to the interrogation room. She refused to admit anything to the officers from the adult authority. She said she wanted to talk to me. I went in. She threw her arms around me and started crying. Don't! Don't! You won't let him get back, will you? You won't let him. I'm after him as much as they are, maybe more. Where is he? I can't tell you. Why'd you do it, Dorothy? Why? Oh, you know why, Joe. You know why. I had to see him. I had to be with Max. It's a bum deal. You traded days for years. But they can't get it. If I don't tell them where he is, they won't find him. They'll find him. He's got to eat. So do you and the kids. He has to go to work, and working with a gun is all he knows. He'll leave a trail. We'll find him. Children. What have they done to the children? Where's Jimmy? They're taking care of him. That's more than you did. Where's your other boy, Vance? Max. Max has him. That's fine. You and Max ought to be real proud of yourselves. I had to see him. You know that. I had to see Max. Has he got a gun? Has he? Has he used it? No. He just thought he might need it. He hasn't hurt anyone. I swear it. You helped him escape, is that right? You helped him. He needed help. I met him at San Rafael. We drove all night. He didn't hurt anyone, Joe. He hasn't hurt anyone. Where is he now? Where is he? All right, Dorothy, we'll find him. Joe, if I tell you, if I tell you, will you go alone? I can show you the way. Will you go alone? Yeah. All right. I'll take you to him, Joe. I trust you. Yeah, I trusted him once, too. 5 p.m., Monday, April 25th. Dorothy Tyler, Ben, and I got in the car and headed north for the coast town of Santa Maria. 
Acting under orders of Chief of Detectives Thad Brown, Larry Thompson from Robbery Detail followed in another car. Holland and Grayson from the State Adult Authority were with him. It was ten minutes past eight when we drove through the town of Santa Maria. Just outside the city, Dorothy Tyler directed us to turn off onto a dirt road. We drove about two miles. She told us to pull up. Across that field. Shacked by those trees. Lonely out here. I'll go with you, Joe. Maybe Max won't understand. Oh, you stay here. Joe, that car. Car stopped here. It's cops, Dorothy. It had to be. They won't shoot unless Max does. But you promised. You said you'd go alone. I'll go alone. Friday? Hello, Grayson. Where is he? She tell you? That shack over there across the field by that clump of trees. He's got one of the kids with him, that right? Yeah, he won't be any trouble. He's armed. The con's up at Quentin. Say he won't be taken alive. They say he'll shoot it out. They talk a lot. You better let us take him. You're not getting paid to, to do for this one. I'll take him alone. I made a promise. That guy in the shacks in the habit of breaking promises. I keep mine. Keep an eye on Miss Tyler, will you, Ben? Thompson's watching her. I'm coming with you. I told her I'd go alone. There's two doors, front and back. Which one are you going in? Front. I'll be around back. Careful, Jim. Yeah. I'll be right back, Grayson. I started to cross the field. Shack was about a hundred yards from the road. The field was uncultivated and I wasn't sure of my footing. I stumbled over a tree stump. Halfway across the field, the lights in the shack went out. Who's that? Who is it? It's me, Max. Joe Friday. Open up. All right, Max. Why the gun, Joe? I never thought you'd take me with a gun. I never thought I'd have to kick down a door to get you. You've changed a lot, Max. How'd you find me, Dorothy? Tell you? Where is she? Outside. Your boy over there, Vance. He's sleeping. He's okay. Put out your hands. Put out your hands. Oh. Sorry, Joe. Yeah. You, you've been good to us. I won't try to explain. Neither will I, Max. Come on. The story you have just heard was true. Only the names were changed to protect the innocent. On June 2nd, trial was held in Superior Court, city and county of Marin, state of California. In a moment, the results of that trial. Max Tyler pleaded guilty to the charge of escape and was sentenced to the term as prescribed by law. He was returned to San Quentin and then transferred to Folsom Penitentiary, where he is now serving his sentence. You have just heard Dragnet, a new series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice for Dragnet comes from the office of Acting Chief of Police, W.A. Wharton, Los Angeles Police Department. Dragnet honors the state of California and the men of the California Highway Patrol, another of America's outstanding law enforcement agencies. 
One of these men, Highway Patrol Commissioner Clifford E. Peterson, outstanding administrator and educator in the field of law enforcement, dedicates his life to making yours more secure. Fatima Cigarettes, best of all long cigarettes, has brought you Dragnet from Los Angeles. Be sure to hear Mr. and Mrs. Ronald Coleman in the Halls of Ivy starting tomorrow on NBC. Welcome back. This explores what happens when a police officer tries to help someone out and things don't go well. And obviously, there are many cases that happen in real life where you try to help people and they won't be helped. Addiction, dysfunction, and character flaws are all powerful forces. And many people, whether they're on the police force or not, have tried to help people out, but in the end, they won't make long-term changes. While it might initially sound like Friday is putting the blame on the wife for the husband's problems, what becomes clear throughout the story is Friday's problem with her is that as a couple, they tend to bring out the worst in each other. They both drink heavily, and I think today we would probably say that they were both alcoholics. And both also have poor judgment and encourage the other to make bad decisions. The episode is, in one way, depressing. You can give people a second chance, and they can take advantage of it. You can be cautious and do diligence and be circumspect and give them another chance only to have it blow up in your face. But the conversation with Thad Brown is important. He doesn't even want someone working for him who's totally closed off to taking a chance on someone. Maybe it's like an old baseball adage I heard uh, several years ago. The third base coach on a baseball team makes a call whether the runner coming around third should head home, whether it's on a base hit or whether it's tagging up and running home. I've heard it said that if you're a third base coach and you never have a runner thrown out at the plate, it's because you're too cautious and you're likely costing the team runs because there are situations where you should have sent the runner and you're just too timid and too cautious about it. And I think the same can be said if you're never let down by someone you're trying to help. Of course, in either case, if it happens all the time, that's another matter. Ben Romero had a couple nice moments in this one. I love when Friday tried to use his promise of going in alone as justification to go up to the house with no other police officer around. And Romero didn't argue it. He said, so you're going in the front or the back? And Friday said, I'm going in the front. And he goes, okay, I'll be at the back. Yeah, This is not a discussion here, Friday. And of course, Romero had good reason for that. After all, he said he wouldn't trust Max with dirty laundry. Now, that was not a common saying because it sounded great. It was something just original to the script, but it may now become my favorite way of saying I don't trust someone. I also found Max's reaction to Friday coming in with the gun uh, really interesting with his whole why the gun thing. Because it 
really showed an inability to grasp the seriousness of what he'd done and take responsibility for it. Joe Friday took the risk of entering the cabin alone, and he gets, hey, why did you bring a gun? Because he didn't want to end up a hostage or worse, which was certainly possible based on Max's terrible judgment. And I think Max had some moments of good intentions and even regret. But without the actual changing character, it just couldn't last. Now, one thing to note about this episode is this begins the naming convention of episodes being named The Big This or The Big That, which would continue throughout the radio series and the 1950s television series, with this exception of re-performances or rebroadcast of 22 Rifle for Christmas, and one other episode, which we're going to hear in a couple weeks, that would continue to be the naming convention. I didn't find any information as to why this was chosen. It was never something that was made a big deal of in terms of public announcements. But using the big this or the big that was certainly not unheard of in a lot of the harder, more serious uh, crime fiction. The first Philip Marlowe novel, of course, The Big Sleep, and there are some detective programs that have used the big this or the big that for episode titles. But it would become a really big part of Dragnet right up until the 1960s series when you would start to have more variations in titles, particularly suited to a new era. Not really something that quite makes sense in the late 1960s. Well, now we turn to listener comments and feedback, and we start out with that which we've received regarding the 22 Rifle for Christmas, and we start out with Alexis, who writes, not sure I've heard this one before, but it's the darkest and most dramatic dragnet I've heard. The emotion of the father so powerful and Friday's line so dry. And that was from Good Pods. And then we have an email from Mike who writes, Hi Adam, I'm still catching up on old episodes, so this was my first time hearing this one, and man was it tough. What I wanted to comment on though was how well you handled the post-episode commentary. I feel like this has come up a few times recently, but this episode in particular had a very difficult and divisive issue to discuss. You did a great job explaining the differing views of the time and relating them to the differing views of our time without passing judgment on one side or the other. It was a masterclass in objectivity that I think a lot of professionals on all sides could learn from. Keep up the great work. Well, thank you so much, Mike. I really respect and appreciate that we have... We have such multitude of political perspectives listening to the podcast. And I want to honor that. We don't really talk about politics or subjects that could be political unless the story really demands it. And then when I do discuss it, I want to be mindful of the audience. Because my aim here with this podcast isn't to promote my politics. It's in part to be a host and to 
give people a bit of a respite from the constant barrage of the headlines, which I think, regardless of our perspective, we all need. Of course, I have my concerns and beliefs about a lot of issues, but there's not a whole lot I can do about those. What I can do is be a host. That just tends to be how I approach it. Thank you so much for your kind email. And then we have an email from Holly who writes, Hello Adam, I've been meaning to write for some time and the February 17th edition of Dragnet finally spurred me to action. I've noticed that some of these old-time radio programs carry a socially conscious message or lesson. But this one? I was stunned at the ending. The message and the father's portrayal of grief, followed by his desire to connect with his dead son's friend, were extremely moving. No wonder it had such an impact. I thought you did a fine job, as you put it, discussing the controversial issue with uh, insight and historical details. Recently, you asked listeners to let you know how they started listening to the great detectives of old-time radio. I'm not sure when I first discovered the program. I'd been tuning in to another Sherlock Holmes podcast during the evening, and when I finished all the episodes, happened to discover your podcast maybe two to three years ago, and was intrigued by the number of old-time detective programs, not only the mysteries, but the, the window that these programs provided into the culture of the time, or in some cases, perhaps the culture's the writers and producers were hoping to encourage. You're right. The listeners in that era expected that most entertainment would generally include some type of lesson or moral. I'm thinking here of the recent Johnny Dollar, The Lord Whatever Whatever Matter, uh, which apparently a lot of listeners disliked, though I thought it was hilarious, as well as a commentary on fair economic policy or the Forbes matter, if I have the correct title, that dealt with suicide. I really enjoy your commentary... Uh, always both informative and entertaining. The information is also of historical value. I'm biased. From time to time, I used to see a photo online of two actors who played black and blue detectives of the air, always with the description, no information available. In fact, I have the original photo and copy attached. One of the actors, black, was some type of relation. I was thrilled to discover that photo on your website along with a few of the actual programs. I really appreciated being able to listen to the recordings. Very interesting examples of very early radio, although they are not of the caliber of subsequent productions, uh, and some content would definitely be considered politically incorrect today. Well, I will thank you for that, Holly. I don't actually remember. I think I may have written something on detectives uh, black and blue. But in 15 years, uh, you write a lot of things. And there have been times where I remember writing things that I've only thought I've written. But I'm glad that that was helpful. Uh, Holly adds uh, one more paragraph. I'm also intrigued about a lot of the music and li literature that listeners would have been familiar with, such as the courtship of Miles Standish. In Who is Sylvia, the score to that Let George Do It episode was an orchestral version of Franz Schubert's setting of the Shakespeare uh, poem Till Uhlenspiegel's Merry Pranks uh, was quoted. I think it was a Casey episode with an obnoxious prankster. And the quote from Bizet's Carmen in the Mr. Chameleon theme, 
The tune refers to the smuggler's hideout, not sure how it relates to Mr. Chameleon, but it sounds so appropriate. Many thanks for providing listeners with such entertaining and interesting programming. Well, thank you so much, Holly. I appreciate uh, your note. I think that one thing that they did far better in the first half of the 20th century is passing down knowledge and culture from previous generations and the great works that came from them. So many books, so many films, so many radio programs were dedicated to telling the history and passing along the from times past. And radio reflected that that happened and it also reflected a desire to further that end. I think what we have today with our popular culture is very present focused. With a slight tinge of nostalgia for the 1990s, and there are lots of reasons for why our culture has gone that way, but I think it definitely has its downsides. Then we go over to YouTube and uh, we have comments regarding the garbage shoot uh, murders. Uh, one listener writes, I'm going to miss Raymond Burr as Ed Backstrand. Uh, and in that episode, I'd mentioned that later episodes of Dragnet had less instances of the death penalty being applied. And Larry says the death penalty was given less because of societal changes. And I kind of wondered about that, but Larry was right. While the sort of pause in the death penalty in the 1970s, you know, stopped executions for several years, there actually had been a decline in executions for quite a while, and the 1950s was right in the middle of that decline. So it would make sense that as Dragnet went on, we'd have less cases that would lead to the death penalty, even if it was a case of murder. So thanks for pointing that out, Larry. And then Michael says, thank you for another great episode of Dragnet. And another listener writes, uh, thank you, uh, enjoyed. Well, thank you so much and appreciate your comments. Now it's time to thank our Patreon supporter of the day. Thank you to Max, Patreon supporter since November 2015, currently supporting the podcast at the Detective Sergeant level of $7.14 or more per month. Thank you so much for your support, Max, and that will do it for today. If you're enjoying the podcast, please follow us using your favorite podcast software. If you're enjoying the podcast on YouTube, be sure to like the video, subscribe to the channel, and mark the notification bell. All those great things that help YouTube channels to grow. We'll be back next Saturday with another episode of Dragnet, but join us back here tomorrow for our second listener support slash appreciation special where... You want to walk, mister? Stella Martin. She live here? Yo ho. Mike McCoy, investigations. You got a card, says that? Let's go inside, huh? Just you got a card, just show me. Is Miss Martin here? No card, huh? If I say yeah, she's here, then what happens? I said inside. <laughs> now, where is she? I'm glad you pushed me, son. Now I got a reason. What? No! You want what, mister? Stella Martin. She live here? Uh huh. You who? Johnny Dollar. 
Investigations. You got a card that says that? Let's go inside, huh? Just you got a card, just show me. Miss Martin here? No card, huh? Suppose I say, yeah, she's here. And what happens? I said inside. Glad you did that, Sonny. Now I got a reason. Now cut it out. I just want to... You're smaller than your little trammy. I hope you'll be with us then. In the meantime, send your comments to box13 at greatdetectives.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radio Detectives and check us out on Instagram, instagram.com slash greatdetectives from Boise, Idaho. This is your host, Adam Graham, signing off.